Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. On tonight's show, Forbes magazine named her one of the world's most powerful women. Patty Stonecipher is co-chair and president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the world's largest charitable organization with a $28 billion endowment. Tonight, Stonecipher addresses the urgent need for reform in our nation's public schools. In the first part of her talk, presented as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, Stonecipher lays out the unprecedented work of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and what Stonecipher terms the exception in philanthropy that she practices. I have a quote from Margaret Mead that sits on my desk in Seattle, and that quote is the reason that I'm here today. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I'd like to share with you a bit of what the Gates Foundation feels can be done by all of us to change the world and learn what you are doing or seeing that needs to be done to change your community or to change the world, because we all have a role to play. I'm also delighted to be here at this incredible central library. Zocalo, which of course means public square, is a very good description of what every public library should be, a place for all people, no matter where they're from or how much money they have, to come together and learn and share their ideas. The first large-scale project that I led at the Gates Foundation after leaving Microsoft at the end of 96 and beginning this project in 97 was a project to ensure that every public library in this country continued in this high-tech 21st century to fulfill that long-standing promise of offering all of our citizens free access to both current and historical information. And so we worked with 11,000 public libraries in tiny towns and in big urban centers, in libraries that, that shared the door and phone with beauty shops and libraries in the back of gas stations to ensure that free, high-quality, public Internet access, quality computers, printers, and trained librarians were available to ensure that the public library of this century could bring its patrons not just the knowledge that's in print, but the increasing body of knowledge, discussion, and action on the Internet. Our vision was a simple one. If you could reach the public library, you should be able to reach the Internet. And five years and 47,000 computers and 62,000 staff trainings later, we felt our initial support for that goal was attained here in the United States at least. We then worked to connect public libraries throughout Canada and Chile to the Internet, 350 of them in Chile alone. So if you get a chance to visit Chile, you need to go to the public library to communicate with home. And we're well into a similar project in Mexico, and we are in the process of looking at our next dozen projects, including partnerships in Latvia, Lithuania, and Botswana. Because if it's true that this is what citizens want and need in Los Angeles, it must be true everywhere. The public library is an indispensable community resource for all citizens. And I really appreciate the role of the Los Angeles Library Foundation and all they're doing. But this particular library building stands for something else, too, a living example of Margaret Mead's quote on how committed individuals can change the world. As you know better than I do, almost 20 years ago, a fire tore through this building, but most of the priceless holdings were saved. 
Some suggested just ripping the building down and putting up an office tower, but thousands of people from all over the city, with help from government, business, and nonprofits, launched a campaign to save our books. And they succeeded, and seven years after the fire, this building reopened, and it is magnificent. Beautiful, easy to use, and twice as big as before. On the day of the grand opening, as I read, tens of thousands came to see the wonderful new library, and one was a Mount Washington resident who worked for the teachers' union. He told the L.A. Times at that time that as a boy, he had spent summers in the children's reading room, and he'd come that day to read The Little Engine That Could to his own little boy. This man, who was celebrating the library and the passion of all the Angelinos who saved it, was Antonio Villarosa. Via Ragosa. So this library represents a lot. It represents the power of knowledge to raise every child up, and it represents the power of people who are determined to change their lives and their communities. Today I want to talk about how we can use that same power to save another one of the country's great public institutions of learning, our national commitment to quality public education. Right now, we're not delivering on that commitment. Our schools are failing to deliver on the promise of a quality public education for every citizen. Across this country, a third, one-third of today's ninth graders won't even graduate from high school. Another third will graduate but be unprepared to meet the demands of college or modern jobs. Here in Los Angeles, the numbers are even worse. Less than half of the students who entered high school four years ago graduated on time. These aren't just statistics. They determine the kinds of lives these young people will have a chance to lead. Students who graduate from high school but don't go to college will earn an average of $25,000 a year. For a family of five, that's perilously close to the poverty line. And those who drop out have it far, far worse. Only 40% of them even have jobs. They are nearly four times as likely to be arrested than their friends who stayed in high school. This is a national emergency. And the only way to respond to a national emergency is with everything we've got. If we give our all, we'll make a huge difference to every young person who dreams of a bright future and counts on a quality public education to achieve that future. So Bill and Melinda Gates, along with Bill's dad, who we call Bill Gates Sr., started this foundation in a predecessor organization in 1995 because they share two family values. The first is, to whom much is given, much is expected. This is the kind of value that probably drives you and your family to civic duty, to showing up at discussions like this, and to your own family giving and your own personal service. But Bill and Melinda realize that they, above all, have been given a truly great deal. Great education, even though between them they only have two college degrees, one in computer science and one MBA, and they're both held by Melinda. (laughs) A strong family for both of them, a great country, a special moment in the technology industry and in history. And they became wealthy far beyond their, or frankly, anyone's dreams. And they realize that they have a serious responsibility to return that wealth to society in a way that makes the most difference. To whom much is given, much is expected. 
The second family value that drives Bill and Melinda to this work is a simple conviction that all lives have equal value no matter where they are being lived. As straightforward as that sounds, it's a bit of an exception in U.S. philanthropy. What the Gates family believes is that the random chance of a child's birth should not determine whether she has any hope of leading a healthy life or getting a basic education. Whether that child is born in Beverly Hills or in South Central L.A., on Park Avenue in New York City, or in Manhisa in Mozambique, should not determine if she even has a chance at a healthy life or a basic education. We, all of us together, need to ensure she has that chance, and we believe we can provide that chance. So you take these two values and $28 billion, and you've got the most important assets of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's my job and my privilege to then ask every day, how do we use these valuable assets to promote equity for as many people as possible in the United States and around the world? So what have we chosen to do with the assets? Internationally, we decided that we can do the most to increase equity by focusing on health, especially in the poorest countries. Because we believe that when health improves, life improves by almost every measure. Today, millions of people still die from diseases that have been virtually eliminated in the rich world, like malaria, tuberculosis, HIV-AIDS. Just those three killed six million people this year. How can we say that 2,000 children that will die today from malaria are less important to save because they were largely in Africa? How can we say that the 5 million new infections in 2005 from HIV-AIDS were less important to prevent because they happened in the developing world? But through our inaction, that is what we're saying. You're listening to Patty Stonecipher, president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past Zocalo radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Our global health efforts center on two areas. First, we support those who perform research and develop new ways to save lives because we believe that this 21st century that we live in, the improvements in health technology will be fantastic for all of us and that a foundation like ours can stand on the shoulders of the R&D that's going on for so many of our needs and bring that technology and bring those new inventions to those who need them most. The search for a malaria vaccine, the search for an AIDS vaccine, cheaper, better, shorter duration drugs for tuberculosis, a better, safer way to kill mosquitoes before they bite, better ways to get critical nutrients right into our common foods, iron into soy sauce, vitamin A into lots of food products, the list of new, affordable discoveries that can cheaply and effectively improve lives goes on and on. And we hope to be able to support those developments. But second, We support better delivery today of affordable life-saving tools we already have and challenge governments and other donors to do the same, things like vaccines and bed nets and cheap drugs that can stop the spread of malaria, that can address the needs of those 2,000 children who are dying needlessly today. This year, it is unconscionable that nearly 30 million newborn children will go unvaccinated. 
not because we don't have the technology. We do. You have your children vaccinated. It's cheap. It's inexpensive, costing only a few dollars per child, and it could save quite literally millions of those children. But we don't do it because we simply failed to get it together. Between donors, donor aid, health systems in the developing world, we failed to reach every child everywhere with the life-saving vaccines that we take for granted. But we can deliver those vaccines. And over the last five years, in a new partnership, the Vaccine Fund and the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, that includes pharmaceutical companies, international agencies like WHO and UNICEF, and other donors like ourselves, the U.S. government, the European Union, we have worked together with country leadership in the developing world where these children are being born, and we have been able to reach tens of millions of children that otherwise might have gone unvaccinated. This project has already saved far more than a million children, and many million more will be saved in the years ahead. This is not optional. We have to learn how to do this, how to deliver vaccines to every child everywhere, because the only thing worse than the fact that we have not discovered an AIDS vaccine 30 years after the start of the pandemic would be finally discovering one and then not being able to or not knowing how to deliver it to those who need it most. You're listening to Patty Stonecipher, president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. For more information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Patty Stonecipher returns after this. Savannah, Georgia has lush gardens and stately homes, but a few blocks away there's the city the tourists seldom see. We should be ashamed. One in every five Savannians at or below the poverty level when we have this image of such a prosperous city. All right, are you ready? Savannah is doing something about it tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Ken Bader. Kurt Froschheiser was a 22-year-old Army private from Des Moines, Iowa. He was killed in Baghdad on November 8, 2003. Since then, his father has been trying to understand Kurt's sacrifice. As we enter the fourth year of the Iraq War, we check in with a fallen soldier's father. That and the news, next time on The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Our guest is Patty Stonecipher, president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In this part of her talk from the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, Stonecipher speaks about the pain of partnership and how sparks are better than complacency. What about here at home? We're working on health in the developing world. Here in the U.S., we have chosen to focus on reforming public school systems. We're supporting the creation of thousands of small high schools, about 1,500 thus far, where classes are challenging and relevant and where teachers build close relationship with students to make sure that nobody falls through the cracks. But new schools alone are nowhere near enough. We must push to change entire school districts so every student in every school gets the benefit of a good education. In the past few years, we have put forth about a billion dollars behind that belief that all kids deserve to graduate from high school ready for college, work, and citizenship. And a billion dollars sounds like a lot, 
but it's a drop in the bucket compared to what you all, we all, as taxpayers, spend on this same issue. Think about it this way. The billion dollars the Gates family will spend on U.S. education in the next few years and that we just spent on the last few years is just one quarter of 1% of the $400 billion annual price tag that this nation spends on K-12 education every year. For our $1 billion to change the way the other $399 billion does business, we have to show the folks who supply the other $399 billion, you all, all of us, and those who govern the $399 billion, that there is a better way to spend those dollars. And so we hope the 1,500 schools we're supporting and the systems we're working with across the country will provide the proof, but it's also about creating progress that people can feel and that people believe in. Whether we're talking about health or high schools, solving problems this big is going to require far, far better coordination than we've ever had before. We're going to have to work with partners and face the challenges together. There's simply no other way to bridge these huge gaps. That's why on the investments that the Gates Foundation makes and has made over the last years, 80% go into partnerships. That's true in health. That's true in education. That's why at high schools in 40 states and the District of Columbia, we're collaborating with teachers and administrators, with NGOs and community-based organizations, with students and their families, business leaders, business organizations, policymakers, other corporate foundations, and researchers who are working tirelessly for a shared vision. There's an old African proverb that says a lot about partnerships. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Let me repeat it. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. The first part of that proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone, is simply a polite way of saying partnerships can be a real pain. If you have to make a quick decision or want to have your voice heard, your first thought probably isn't to form a steering committee. If you just want your opinions to get out, it's faster to create a blog than it is to a community organizing group. Partnerships cause friction. Informed, opinionated people don't always agree on the best way to solve a problem. And yet, friction has enormous benefits. It forces us to test our beliefs about our work and the results that we're getting. You could see that kind of friction is particularly important if you're in the nonprofit world and write checks for a living because you get a lot more thank yous than why didn't yous. And that friction really does provide some level of the market phenomena that corporations rely on to improve their products and improve their work and continuously improve their efforts. Partnerships help us all avoid complacency. In isolation, it is too easy to take pride in the kids we are serving, the kids that are walking across for that diploma. In an honest partnership, you are constantly reminded of the kids you are not serving. All of this talk about partnerships sounds theoretical, but I can assure you that it isn't. In every area where the foundation works, we're constantly asking ourselves, how can the work that we support benefit not just a few people, but a thousand times or a million times that many in a way that benefits not just this child in this seat, in this school today, but this child's grandchild. 
setting expectations at that level that we want what we are doing today to serve this child's grandchild requires that we need to look to change the entire systems, whether that system is the public school system or the public health system. That kind of change, pervasive change owned by many, is impossible without partnerships. Foundations simply can't begin to cause that level of pervasive and enduring change. Let me give you a few examples of how partnerships are growing and changing high schools right here in Los Angeles. Earlier this month, the foundation invested in partnerships that will help redesign four Los Angeles high schools, Carson, Jordan, Fremont, and Washington Prep. Right now, these four schools alone are supposed to serve 14,000 students. Now, I know how hard teachers work and that most principals really care about the results at their school. But no matter how hard they work, 14,000 students, no matter how much they care, is it any wonder that kids feel alienated and anonymous in these massive education factories or that parents don't know where to begin to intersect to influence that education? Does it surprise anyone that students fail to see the relevance of the curriculum or fail to see relationships with the people in that school? Fortunately, there is an alternative. High schools can make students feel connected instead of isolated. That's the idea behind an innovative school reform framework called First Things First, which has been effective across the country and which now Fremont High and Washington Prep High are implementing with help from the Institute for Research and Reform in Education. The key to First Things First, it's a very focused effort. They're breaking up huge high schools into small learning communities tailored to students' interests. In these communities, kids work with the same teachers and classmates every year, year after year after year, which gives them the confidence to succeed and a support system when they're having trouble. And since the communities are built around themes, the schools are built around themes, they give students a stake in their education by giving them choices. Should they attend the Engineering and Trades Academy, or is the Performing Arts community more relevant to their ambitions or their interests? Instead of marking time in overcrowded classrooms and hallways and plowing through cookie-cutter lessons, talented young mathematicians will excel in math and science in a community focused on that. And if that math whiz's grades start to slip, you can count on the fact that her teachers, who have followed her for years, are going to know about it, and they're going to get to the bottom of it. That's because all the students at Fremont and Washington Prep will be signed an individual advocate who will meet them individually every week and speak to their parents every month. It will be a lot harder for kids or their parents to fall through the cracks in a school like that. Another new set of Los Angeles partnerships between a group called Talent Development High Schools, a focused program uh, at Johns Hopkins University, and Carson High and Jordan High is also creating career-oriented academies as well as special academies for ninth graders who too often tune out or drop out because that transition to high school can be incredibly overwhelming. These academies make sure adolescents are prepared both academically and also socially to make the adjustments to a more rigorous learning environment. The partnerships are powerful because they combine the research and innovative thinking of the nation's best reform experts with the experience and dedication of the people who have been here in Los Angeles trying to support these kids in these schools for years and years. 
I hope I haven't made it sound like from Seattle we think this is easy. You know that when all of these partners sit down in a room together, sparks are going to fly, and we're glad for that. Partnerships are hard, and that's why they're so productive. The debates that will rage in the years ahead, in your newspapers, in your hallways, in your classrooms, will definitely force the high school redesign to move forward. I guarantee you it will continue to move forward, but in the end, these kinds of frustrating interactions and these sparks will definitely make the schools better. Sparks are much, much better than complacency. You're listening to Patty Stonecipher, president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Or visit the podcast page at kpcc.org. Patty Stonecipher returns after this. The New York City Opera has revived the Frank Lesser musical, The Most Happy Fella. On the next Fresh Air, we meet the star of the original production and the woman who became Frank Lesser's wife, Joe Sullivan Lesser. Also, folklorist and musician Mick Maloney revives theater songs from the late 1800s. Join us for the next Fresh Air. Weekdays at 1 and 7 on 89.3 KPCC. At 2 o'clock on Monday's Talk of the City... Preventing overdose deaths. When she overdosed, her friends were too worried to cross the street and tell the paramedics that she needed help. They thought the paramedics would call the police, the police would arrest them all, and besides that, they thought Lauren would be okay in a few minutes. Lauren died at the age of 35. Three people overdose and die in Los Angeles County every day. Advocates say it's preventable. That story, plus the minimalist jukebox, Talk of the City, weekdays at 2 on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Our guest is Patty Stonecipher, president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In this part of her talk from the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, Stonecipher speaks about working models for reforming school districts and making sure we design schools not to be like factories or fortresses. Let me tell you about another kind of partnership that I believe will make our schools far, far better, and we're seeing it at work across the country and seeing it at work in Los Angeles. It isn't sufficient to just bring professional educators together and ask them how to fix the schools. You've got to listen to and please the customer, and that means the students. And, okay, their parents. In Los Angeles, several communities have already organized to make sure that their student voices come through loud and clear when it's time to make decisions about school reform. In south-central L.A., the Community Coalition for Substance Abuse Prevention has helped students in neighborhood schools get critical issues from textbooks to public safety on the agenda. And in East L.A., a group called Inner City Struggle brought students and parents together to change counterproductive tardy policies in their schools. What was that tardy room anyway, and why did it take the kids to tell us that needed to change? Well, these student groups also insisted and are insisting on much stronger curricula because they know their schools aren't rigorous enough and they know they often don't get access to the most rigorous courses. In June, almost 1,000 members of the Community Coalition, Inner City Struggle, and other groups marched to a Board of Education meeting to demand a change in curriculum, and they got it. Now, the board will require all high school students beginning with the class of 2008 to complete the series of courses known as the A through G curriculum. 
This is also the requirement for admission to UC and Cal State systems. It makes sense to demand that students leaving high schools are adequately qualified to enter your colleges. But last year, only 54% of students completed the A through G series, and of those, fewer than half passed the courses. This isn't just a matter of making sure the kids get the right prereqs on their transcripts. It's about making sure they can analyze problems, communicate clearly, and do high-level math. It's about setting high expectations and providing the support for the teachers, the schools, and the systems to see those high expectations achieved. A few innovative high schools in the city are working directly with colleges to make sure their students come out of high school prepared for the next stage of their life. Early college high schools are a phenomenon that is happening all across the country with hundreds of new early college high schools uh, serving students and offering them the chance to earn college credit and many even an associate degree by the time they leave high school. It sounds like a crazy idea to take kids who are already struggling in school and push them even harder, but with the support that early college high schools provide, it works. And it works because the kids want that rigorous education as long as it's relevant and well done, and they're willing to put a lot more effort into it. Just a few miles from here, the California Academy of Liberal Studies, or CALS, a charter school affiliated with the Los Angeles Trade Technical College, is proving that students will rise to that challenge. The school was founded in 2003 by a young man named Ref Rodriguez, who grew up in northeast L.A. and knew that kids in his neighborhood didn't have good options for high school. So he found some partners to help him, and he started a brand-new school. In some ways, CALS looks like a lot of other schools in the city. I can rattle off the stats. It's 96% Latino, 87% of its students qualify for subsidized lunch, 79% speak a language other than English in the home. But that's where the statistics start to change. Unlike most other schools, CALS is getting great results. In its first year attendance, one of the first markers of whether kids find the schools rigorous and relevant was an outstanding 96% and 53% of its students were proficient in algebra compared to just 8% in the district as a whole. By the end of last summer, 95% of ninth graders at CALS had taken and completed at least one college-level class. Of course, our goal at the Gates Foundation and the Los Angeles School District's goal is a lot bigger than a handful of small learning communities and early college high schools. Kids and your community don't just need a few great schools that I could talk about all night. They need a great system in which every school is great, in which there are no cracks to fall through. That's the far-reaching approach to education, and for that, we need reform efforts to move up from these model school levels to the district level. In Los Angeles, the partnerships that are transforming schools like Fremont and Jordan and creating new schools like Cal's are an important first step towards a broader district-wide reform strategy. These high schools and the partnerships they depend on can serve as models for high schools throughout the district. 
The district is making other strides as well, working in partnership with a group called Architects of Achievement. It is developing a set of guiding principles for this massive school construction that it's hard to miss if you even go a few blocks in Los Angeles and the renovation efforts underway. You all know that the citizens of Los Angeles have voted repeatedly and did it again just a few weeks ago to support this unprecedented school building project. You're demanding better schools, and you have shown again and again that you're willing to do what's necessary to make them better, at least in the physical exterior. The goal for all of these efforts is to foster intimate learning environments inside those schools. So the district is committed to building new schools that don't look like fortresses or factories, because if that's what they look from the outside, that's what they're going to feel like from the inside. In the efforts to redesign high schools inside and out, improve curricula, overhaul whole school systems, partnerships are tackling some of the toughest problems in education. Some of you in this audience are formally involved in these partnerships. Many of you aren't, but you're interested in what should be done about schools and want to know how to help. Well, at the risk of sounding corny, you're all essential to these partnerships because you're all citizens, and these are public schools. They are ours, and the commitment to these kids is ours. You're listening to Patty Stonecipher, president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past Zocalo radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O. LA.org. So what can you do? I'm interested in hearing your views on this, but let me give you a few ideas. You can make sure your representatives know that high schools need to change. That means learning about your schools and telling others what you learn. Watch the Board of Education meetings on Channel 58. Better yet, go to the meetings. The Select Committee on Small Learning Communities is meeting next Thursday. And write letters to your board members, write letters to the editor, to your legislators, to state and federal leaders, to your governor. Second, you can demand that increasing graduation and college readiness rates is your representative's top priority. That means raising your voice. It means joining organizations like Community Coalition or Inner City Struggle that know how to make their voices heard, or it means establishing a new organization in your neighborhood or improving one that's already there. Third, you can offer your time and resources to high school students who need them and listen to these students. Volunteer as a tutor. Urge your company to set up an internship program so kids can build relationships with mentors and get the skills they need to land a great job or just see what a great job looks like. If you're a student and that sounds like a great opportunity, get on the phone to your local businesses and ask them if they offer internships. And if they don't, ask why not. At the beginning of my remarks, I referenced the uplifting words of Margaret Mead, but I also want to share with you the shaming remarks that were attributed to Dante. Many say they were falsely attributed, but I still like this quote, and so I'm going to use it no matter who said it. The hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in times of great moral crisis maintain their neutrality. For the thousands of kids in L.A., for the millions of kids in this country... This is a time of crisis, and each of us has a role to play in trying to address that crisis, and we have no business remaining neutral. Think of the difference it will make if even one young girl from a tough background, because of your efforts, graduates from high school ready for college, work, and citizenship. 
Then multiply that impact by millions. That's what's at stake here. Remember the African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. You all came today, I hope, uh, to talk about how to improve our schools because we want to go far. We want every high school senior who crosses the stage on graduation day to be walking towards something more than his or her diploma. We want him to be walking towards a hopeful future. Let's help him get there in L.A. and across the country by going together with new purpose and new partnerships and new districts and systems that we hold up to be all these kids need and deserve. Thank you for all you're doing for schools. You're listening to Patty Stone Cipher, president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Or visit the podcast page at kpcc.org. We'll hear more from Patty Stonecipher and questions from the audience after this. KPCC is proud to announce its monthly arts and culture newsletter built around a monthly theme. As a newsletter subscriber, you'll have the opportunity to receive special discounts on cultural events. Visit kpcc.org and click on the link to sign up. Next time on Day to Day. Up the middle. Pros from 16 countries play America's pastime in an international tournament. And things don't work out so well for the Americans. The globalization of Major League Baseball next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Patty Stonecipher, co-chair and president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, takes questions from the audience in this Zocalo Public Square lecture recorded at the Los Angeles Central Library. Yes. Tell me who you are. Yes, my name is Myrna Culbreth. Uh, I happen to be the author of the Phonics game that a lot of people have heard about, and now I have a newer one, Phonicsopoly. Of course, I'm interested in the reading problem, and I note that the figure of two-thirds who are not prepared for college is nearly identical to the figure for those who don't score proficient on the national reading exam. One of my contentions would be a big part of this problem is failure to teach reading at the grade school and high school and going out the door of high school level. And, uh, you know, our, our method has been tested in, under U.S. Department of Education grant raised kids to the top 14% in the country in 16 hours. Why can that not be done more widely? And are you, are you addressing the reading problem in particular? Well, I don't think there's a person here who wouldn't agree with you that, that literacy of the kids in the schools is an incredibly important focus. Um, like most organizations, we choose a focus, and we look for the most neglected area. And the truth is, in the United States, when you look at U.S. results compared to other countries, we start out great in early years and are about even by the time kids hit 6th and 7th grade and then start on a long downhill effort. And so we chose to focus on the high schools because they seem to be the most neglected. There's been lots of efforts, and here in this city also, around reform of the early years. 
we're not at all saying that isn't important and that literacy and math skills and the other things in the early years and early learning for that matter are all critical ingredients to ensure every kid fulfills their potential. Our focus, on the other hand, is on this neglected and incredibly bad high school system that we have created across this country and not reformed in so long. So um, I, I think we probably agree more than disagree, and I, I hope there is more put into literacy so that the kids that hit ninth grade are prepared to do high school-level work. There's certainly a remedial problem that even here I was learning that the Los Angeles uh, Library actually has a partnership with the Princeton Review and does some tutoring classes in some of the branch libraries uh, because it is important to get kids the remedial skills that they need. Hi, I'm Richard Moore. I'm just retired as a um, school librarian after 32 years in a high school. And um, what I discovered over those 32 years was that a student who has been trained from kindergarten through eighth grade that there is no such thing as a library, which is what we do in California because we don't give them librarians and we don't give them books in their schools. Um, We have the lowest level of school and public library staffing in the nation. That by the time they get to ninth grade, they don't think that libraries exist. That was true in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. I was a student in 1961 who walked into Torrance High School and it was the first time I'd ever seen a library. Um, that is as true today as it was then. Unless we do something about those first nine grades, kindergarten through eighth grade, the high school's job is impossible. I don't think we disagree. The libraries, as you can see from my early remarks, the public library system has been a big part of our focus, um, and school libraries uh, play an important role. I mean, it is great to see the new branches opening and being supported here in the Los Angeles system and the amount of circulation that is happening with kids going to the libraries, using the computers, but also picking up books and, and other materials when they go. That's not to say that it's uh, enough done. I mean, I, one of the things I'm not is I'm not a, uh, um, no, I'm not an elected official. We choose a few things to do, and we have chosen to concentrate on high schools. But the libraries and the role of libraries in a kid's life is clearly something that we completely agree on. My name is Velma Montoya. I'm a former regent of the University of California. I'd like to request more flexibility in your early college high schools, which I do think work. Um, In Pacoima, there is a program of Latino students that work with Glendale College. The kids, they go to the college in the morning, then they go to high school in the afternoon. They applied for funding from the Gates Foundation. We're told, no, that you want like a bricks-and-mortar high school. And, well, they were asking for books, you know, for resources, but not for the whole thing. They're doing it on the cheap. The kids are doing very well. I know because I've seen them succeed at UCLA. But because they didn't have the kind of structure like these high-tech high schools, they were turned down, is my understanding. I also know that and encourage the Salesian Fathers at Don Bosco Tech, which is in the San Gabriel Valley, to apply for, again, an early college high school setup. They similarly were turned down. I don't know the reason there, but I know that they succeed and their kids do very well, the Bosco That's Tech good. kids. That's good feedback. I mean, we'll go back and look at it. I have a colleague here who works on the California efforts, Carol Ravitreat. We can just note the two schools and check. I would just, as a point of reference, say we get 3,000 requests a month, and you know we've already done 1,500 high schools, but we can't possibly do all of the projects that come forward. But 
it's great that those schools are working to try to bring that kind of relevance into the schools, so I hope that at least they stay motivated to do that. But we'll take a look at both of them. It's Velma, right? Thank you. Hi. My name is Kimberly. I'm a middle school teacher. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question. What inspired you to leave the Microsoft Corporation and decide to co-chair the foundation? That's a great question, actually. Um, I left it after... I've been 20 years in the high tech, and I achieved more than I ever thought I would. And I had two kids that were um, well into high school, and I wanted to make sure that I spent a a couple of years where I actually uh, saw them before they went off. They're now 21 and 24. But I actually left Microsoft to go to DreamWorks. And I had done a joint venture with them, and it was fun, and they were trying to put this new thing together, and I'd been part of building Microsoft and thought it would be fun to build DreamWorks. But at my going away party, Bill asked me, whether I'd take a look at their ideas they had about really scaling up their philanthropy. And I do this work as a volunteer uh, because I was lucky enough at Microsoft to be part of that high-tech boom. And I really was at the point in my life where I wanted to learn and do different things. And believe me, this Bill and Melinda and I knew each other well enough to know that our values were aligned. And the idea that this family was ready to do this extraordinary thing, to literally turn over their wealth and ask me to help them figure out how to give it back to society in an appropriate way. I mean, who would say no? I tease them all the time that even though I work for nothing, that they could actually auction my job off every year and actually make more to put back into the foundation because it is such a privilege to get the chance to do. I mean, you know what it's like when you get to help one family in your neighborhood or, or two kids go to school. I get to do that all day long. It's like the world's most amazing, not only philanthropic effort, but also like a PhD project and that we peel back what are the issues that keep a woman from being able to plan or, to, you know, the reproductive health issues in the developing world? What are the issues on really getting school boards that work? What are the issues? And we're constantly able to just ask questions of people. What's it going to take? What's it going to take? And be able to support them and figuring out those answers. So I don't know anybody who wouldn't take my job, anybody, that, but it's, it's a great job. Hi, I'm Marlene Cantor. I'm the school board president. For yeah, good, Hi. good. It's good to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. I just wanted to publicly thank you and the Gates Foundation for your support and how much we look forward to this new partnership. And then also on the comments you made about the community coalition and the inner city struggle, I just wanted to let you know they really are effective because in the mm-hmm. A through G conversation, I learned so much from the students who took me step by step through the process as to not only what they needed and why they needed it, but how we could implement it and create policy from it. So our A through G policy that was proudly passed in June was really helped to be written by the community. And that, I think, is what good policy is all about. I just wanted to let you know that. That is great. And, you know, there is this kind of old maxim that bad policy usually is affects those who have the least. And so it's so important for these kids to stand up and help shape good no, policy. I, I they can change have, history. I, I think they, they are changing history. I now. now have in my office proudly a picture of the students the moment that the vote was taken. Mm-hmm. Somebody took a picture of those mm-hmm. students that were out in front and with their sign saying, you know, power to education and give me back my classes and and with their smiles on their faces, which is what motivates me every day. Well, you, you said what that the kids are good. What do you need from 200 citizens that would show up for something like this? First of all, it's great that you did, but 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 what uh, do you need from the city? I need your, your I need citizens? from them their support and their focus on the challenges that we do face and that this isn't something that anybody can do alone. Go back to the Margaret Mead 
statement that you made in the beginning. And it does take a group of people to get something done. And the work that we're doing, it's going to change and impact the rest of the lives of the 737,000 kids that we serve. And the school board is up to the task, and we are focused on the challenges. And we welcome everybody here's input and support. And do come to the board meetings. Um, they're every other Tuesday. Do call me as school board president or any of the other board members to help us to create the kind of policy that this city feels that it needs to see, because that's what we are, a policymaking board. That's great. Thank you for coming. My name is Shane Martin. I'm the Dean of the School of Education at Loyola Marymount University here in Los Angeles. Clearly, issues related to school success and school failure are very complex, and I think you addressed many of the key issues in terms of the small school reform movement and looking at the curriculum and these types of things. But one thing that I didn't hear you talk much about would be teacher training and training leaders for the types of schools that we're envisioning here in Los Angeles and you're helping to create throughout the country. There are those that think that schools are part of the problem. And my position is that schools of ed need to be a major part of the solution. And clearly, if our education schools are putting out teachers and principals and leaders for schools of the past, we're not really working to move forward in the future. So I'd like to hear you comment on how the foundation looks at the training of teachers and principals and who will be the leaders and the teachers for the small schools that we're envisioning and what types of partnerships could be possible. That's good. It's very apt that you noted that it's missing, and it is one of the things that we put less emphasis on just, again, because you choose to focus. First of all, on teachers, all of you are certainly aware nobody could really be in this country without being aware of the no child left behind, which raises the kind of stakes and measurements, but we have to provide these kind of high stakes with high support. And I do agree that teachers and principals aren't getting the support they need to be able to turn around and deliver the kinds of results they want. And we pay very little for the running of the schools. The taxpayers pay that. But for this period where teachers need to pull out of the classroom, have the time for professional development, rethink their curriculum, decide how to share best practices better, and decide how to reform and recreate their school in a method that works. We're also, um, for instance, on some of the projects that, that were just mentioned, a significant part of it's going into technical support and coaches that actually can work with the teachers and the instructional leaders to make change. That said, there's a couple of programs, as you know, around the country that are doing a good job training principals. We support some of those. There's nowhere near enough capacity for training principals and retraining teachers who are ready for um, to take on some of these challenges. And we're always interested in new things. It isn't a huge part of what we do, but I completely agree with you that it's a very big part of this equation of if you're going to hold the schools accountable, you need to give the supports to the teachers and the principals. We partner with Eli Broad's efforts um, that are very good at supporting administrators, but those are small numbers of folks coming out into a system, not just in L.A., but around the country that needs a lot more um, 
trained principals, trained administrators, and trained teachers. There's a couple of other principal and teacher training efforts that we support, but again, they're just part of it. So if you have more ideas and see other things that you think are best practices in the country that should be. As to the schools of education, I think like most schools, we have to reconsider our missions and charters and approaches every decade or so, and the world is certainly changing around us, and the best schools of education are changing too. And the fact that you're here tells me that you're probably doing that uh, as we speak. But there are schools of education that are turning out teachers that are best designed for industrialized era high schools, and we've got to be in a new time. Teachers that need to be able to have the kids participate, not just listen. So there's a lot of changes happening. My name is Bill Sias. I sit on the probation commission for the county of Los Angeles, and I'm speaking to kids that you will all think of as juvenile delinquents. These are minors who are arrested and are taken in physical custody as given to the county. And we have these kids in our little baby camps, prisons all around the county. These kids go to school. These kids, like the populations that we are also thinking of that are out on the streets, they also need uh, specialized education. Their needs tend to be a lot more severe. Uh, Their academic deficiencies, their socialization skills are obviously lacking. It's the primary reason they find themselves where they find themselves. As a community of people, though, I want to tell you in this room that we need to think much more proactively at the county level of the educational outcomes that we demand from the county Department of Education with respect to this young population. Because this young population represents in our control the last opportunity that we have to capture their imaginations and to turn them around before they become adults. Because no thinking person in this room is under any illusion of how we treat our adult criminal class in this country. While those people are juveniles, we have a chance to work with them. And I simply wanted to make that voice heard on their behalf uh, because of the prominence of our speaker and because of the level of interest demonstrated by my fellow citizens in this room. And I will thank you. That's good. Thank you. Michael D. McCarty, professional storyteller, have mouth, we'll run it. And I have an observation slash question. It seems that a kid can go from kindergarten to high school and possibly even through their entire college career and never have a class on how to study, the process of studying, the process of learning. I mean, not even a class, a discussion on it. And so it seems to me that maybe you have seen these someplace. I haven't. I haven't heard of them, maybe in some private school. So have you seen those things? I think they'd be a great idea. And the other thing, a kid can go all the way through school and never learn anything about money, finance, savings. And I've seen a couple of programs pop up, and they have a tremendous effect once they're presented. And I do some programs like that myself. So I don't know if you've seen things like that. If not, they'd be good. It's good. It's good. I don't disagree with you. I've had the opportunity to go to some of the best schools in the country, public schools. And so I've seen a little bit of everything. I've seen people teaching economics with rolls of dimes and having the kids do math around the issues and around their own personal economies. But your point is still the same, which is a couple of schools doing the right thing doesn't mean our kids get the right 
um, services and curriculum that they need, and, and we, we all need to keep looking at that and keep assessing what needs to be done. If people that are affiliated with this district know more than I do about this, please tell me. Um, Ms. Stonecipher, my name is Maria Casillas, and I'm president of Families and Schools. Ah. And, um, and I have one question. You've mentioned the engagement of youth, and I certainly support it. Our organization was a great part of the coalition that pushed for the A2G. But one thing that we've learned over time, in particular with our engagement with the Los Angeles Annenberg Project, which was a $53 million project here in Los Angeles, is that if parents don't have an appetite and sustain that appetite for good schools, the bureaucracy, you know, Marlene is here today and gone tomorrow, board members change, superintendents change, it just somehow is not sustainable. So I'm wondering if you would consider a much larger investment in building the capacity of parents to become more empowered with knowledge to sustain the reforms that you will put in place. Because in an urban society like Los Angeles, if you notice here, most of us are not the parents of these kids. Probably 95% of us are not the parents of these kids. And it is a very large burden to ask our civic leaders and those who care about civic engagement to carry this burden because no matter how much we care, unless parents can really engage in the process themselves, I don't think reform can be sustained. No, I, I think you, you are absolutely right. And if you'd asked me two years ago, even three years ago, the kinds of investments in community organizations that we've made here in Los Angeles, we wouldn't even been doing. But we learned that it wasn't sufficient to fund the schools. You needed to fund those in the community who would hold the schools uh, to the standards. And we need to stay with them holding all of us to the standard to, to deliver. I would say, though, that I'm, I think the numbers on the recent bond measure and the idea that 65% of people, th there's a lot of parents in those voting numbers to get numbers like what you see uh, saying yes on, on another $4 billion in, in capital money. So I guess we just need to get them enough information to know how to go beyond new buildings to what do they ask for in terms of curriculum and, and uh, uh, teacher supports and all the other things, which is I, I see you nodding, so I think you probably agree. So I, I hear you, and I think we should look more at ways to support the parents' ability to make a difference. Thank you all, and I'll be at the reception afterwards. You've been listening to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Tonight's guest was Patty Stonecipher, co-chair and president of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, in a Zocalo Public Square lecture. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to the Los Angeles Times, the James Irvine Foundation, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles for making this program possible. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and... Let me try that again. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. Or visit the podcast page at kpcc.org. The producer for Zocalo is Peter Stencil. Jade Gao is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening.
Looking for a place to explore life's persistent questions? You can find it on Aloud on the Off-Ramp, a new addition to KPCC's blog, where world-renowned thinkers from the award-winning lecture series 